Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Let's pray together. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is Jesus is Not Enough. That intrigue you at all? A little heresy there somewhere? Huh? I think I see the elders in the back. They're gathering. I see a shepherd's hook getting ready to come up here and get me off the stage. So I better explain quickly uh, what I'm talking about. In terms of salvation, Jesus obviously is more than enough. He's done it all. He's paid the price. Uh, all we do have to do is put our trust and confidence in him. But in terms of relationships and community, Jesus himself says that he is not enough, that Jesus is not sufficient to fulfill our relational needs. So let me take you back to Genesis chapter 2. You might recall that Adam is created prior to Eve. Adam is alone with God in the garden. There's this fellowship of one with the other. And in the midst of all that, it says what? It is not good that Adam should be alone. What, what do you mean? Adam's communing with God. Isn't that sufficient? Well, apparently not. And so God creates a woman out of man and brings that woman to Adam. And what does he say? At last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Here's the Ogden translation. va 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 voom <laughs> Finally, somebody to complete me. And so there's that sense of a relational need that only other human beings can complete, man and woman, but also what we're going to be talking about this morning is the place of the body of Christ relationally in terms of our, our completion. There are times when a uh, turn of a phrase can really capture things in a very pithy way. One of the practices uh, that I had from my church when I pastored up in Saratoga, and some of you may know where that is, up in Silicon Valley, uh, we would have an annual adult retreat. We would come down to Asilomar. That's how we got to know this area and decided this is where we wanted to land. And we usually just had, quote, lay speakers from our, at our retreat. We had a lot enough talent in our congregation. We didn't need to go outside to find other people. And this particular year, uh, there was a man by the name of Mike who turned a phrase that I thought was just very powerful to capture what we were all about this morning. He says, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be these complete multi-talented, thoroughly well-rounded individuals. And he said, then it dawned on him that we were never to be paragons of self-sufficiency. And this is where he, where he put it. We don't have it all together, but together we have it all. And I think that's a pretty good description of what the body of Christ is supposed to be all about. So that's the focus of attention this morning. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through, set, 12 through 21, and then verse 20, 27. And in anticipation of that text, there's three questions that you see on the screen that we'll try to answer as a result of the message that Paul communicates to us. First of all, what's Christ's relationship to the church? Secondly, how does the church as the body of Christ function so that it becomes fully alive, becomes a reality of the body of Christ? And then lastly, what hinders us from seeing that reality body of Christ come to be? So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 12. 12 through 21, and then verse 27. That's on page 959 in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to return to that or to an app that you might have brought with you. 
Paul writes, for just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the feet, head to the feet, I have no need of you. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, in Scripture, we could look at lots of different images, and there are lots of different images for the church. We read through some of those this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Paul talks about the church as being living stones to be put into a, a living building, or the church as the chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But I think the fundamental identity of the church is through this image that we call the body of Christ. And we will look again here at verse 12, which is already on the screen, and you will see a, a couple of words that are highlighted that focus in on uh, the key issue in terms of around the way the body functions. For Paul writes in verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, so all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So many, one, unity, diversity is what Paul is getting at here. So you could look at the, the body, the human body, as an analogy for the church uh, through a couple of different lenses. On the one hand, the human body works best as a unit, as a oneness, when all the parts are under the coordination of the head and everything functions uh, together well, and you see a, the unified action of the body. And yet the human body has many parts. Uh, so you look more closely and there's a diversity of parts, the eyes for seeing, the ears for hearing. Uh, all these individual parts are necessary for the health of the whole. So my key question here at this point is, how is Paul using the phrase body of Christ? Is it a word picture? Is he giving us a metaphor of how the church is functioning like a human body? Or is he saying something deeper than that? So what's, what's a metaphor? Some of you remember from your English classes, I'm sure. Uh, it's a word picture connected by a verb, to be, that describes you know, some analogy to to reality. So Jesus says of us, you are the salt of the earth. A metaphor. I think only Lot's wife took that literally. <laughs> we Protestants uh, will say, stand before this table and we'll hold up the bread as Jesus did and, you know, this is my body broken for you. We don't say that that bread is the actual body of Christ. There's uh, people in other traditions that do. Uh, but we don't. That's a symbol of another picture. But when Jesus, or excuse me, Paul talks here in this text about the body of Christ, I think he's saying something more literal. There's a deeper reality here than simply a metaphor or a word picture. Let's go back to verse 12. Let's read it again. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with the church. Is that the way it's said? What's, what's wrong with what I just put up there on the screen? 
That's what you expect Paul to say. But he says exactly what? So it is with Christ. So Paul is digging deeper here, and he says that the church is literally the extension of the living Jesus here on earth. He has replaced himself with us, and he lives among us, and we are that, that reality. That's here. Ray Stedman, who was pastor of Peninsula Bible Church in the area, put it like this. The life of Jesus is still being manifested among people, but now no longer through an phys- individual physical body limited to one place on earth, but through a complex corporate body called the church. Now, where did Paul get such a radical idea? Where did that come from? I think from the very moment of his first encounter with Jesus, he began to understand this reality. Before Paul was an apostle, he was what? He was Saul, a Pharisee. And he was so zealous for God that he went to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, and took out papers to arrest Christians in Damascus. And on his way there with his entourage, he had a blinding experience of a light coming out of the sky, knocking him to his backside, and then a voice came out of that light. And what was that voice? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Saul realized he was in the presence and power greater than himself, and so he says, who are you, Lord? And the answer comes back, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now Paul could have said, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting your followers. But what is Jesus saying there? You touch my followers, you've touched me. I indwell them. (laughs) You go after them. You're going after me because the nature of the church. I continue to live my life out, Jesus says, through my people. There is a deeper reality here. That's why the missionary Frank Laubach could say of Jesus, we are his multiplied hands, his feet, his voice, his compassionate heart. So what's the relationship of Jesus to the church? Jesus indwells his people. He's here right now among us in us. He has created us. Wow. It's a deep reality. Let me tell you a story. One of my covenant partners was a man by the name of Jeff Cotter. Uh, Jeff and I and a few others met out of seminary for 18 years. We meet every year. And uh, Jeff was a storyteller. And we were always waiting for what would be the next story Jeff would tell. So one year he spun out this story of an experience that he had. He later turned this into a magazine uh, article, and so I'm kind of borrowing uh, from that. But Jeff uh, was a pastor. He was just coming back from an interview from a church. He was on an airplane, and uh, as he was flying back, he uh, he was dressed in a work shirt and a pair of jeans, didn't look the part of a pastor. But sitting next to him was a young man who was dressed to kill. I mean, he looked like he just stepped out of GQ magazine, and he was just full of what he was planning to do. And so he began to sort of tell Jeff all of his plans, the man in his 20s. And his business was women's fitness, and he was establishing women's exercise salons throughout California. Once he conquered California, then it was on to the rest of the nation. He was going to be easily a millionaire by age 30. So he spent some time telling Jeff this story. And finally, he turns to Jeff and said, uh, mm, uh, what do you do? <laughs> and looking at him like, 
And Jeff thought, well, I think I'm going to have a little fun with this guy. Uh, all along making a, a, a point about the nature of the church. So Jeff says to him, well, it's interesting, we're in a similar business. You are in the body-changing business. I am in the personality-changing business. We apply basic theocratic principles to accomplish indigenous personality modification. <laughs> and the guy thought, I better not sound stupid. I, I, I think I've heard of that, he says. Um, Jeff goes on. Um, and uh, he asks uh, the question, uh, how many, how many offices do you have? Jeff says, well, we have many offices. We have offices up and down the state. In fact, we're national. We have offices in every state, including Alaska and Hawaii. The guy is now checking Wall Street listings to see who this is. And then he go, Jeff goes on, and a matter of fact, we've gone international. And management has a plan to put at least one office in every country in the world in this business era. And then Jeff pauses for effect. Do you have that in your business plan? Well, no, not yet. Uh, you mentioned management. How does this all work? Well, Jeff says, well, it's a family concern. There's a father and a son. They run everything. <laughs> there must be a lot of capital, Mr. MBA says. Well, you mean money. Yes, I suppose so. No one knows exactly how much it takes, but we never worry because there's never a shortage. The boss always seems to have enough. He's a very creative guy. The money is, well, just there. In fact, those in the organization have a saying about our boss, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Oh, he's into ranching too? <laughs> no, it's just a saying we have to indicate as well. Now this guy is totally hooked. Uh, well, what about you? Jeff says, you mean the employees? Well, there's something to see. They have a spirit that pervades the organization. It works like this. The father and the son love each other so much that their love filters down through the organization so that they all find themselves loving one another too. I know this sounds old-fashioned in a world like ours, but I have people in the organization that are willing to die for me. Do you have that in your business? The guy's ready now to abandon his measly plans. <laughs> Higher on. Well, what about the benefits, he asked Jeff. Well, they're substantial. I have complete life insurance fire insurance, all the basics. You might not believe this, but it's true. I have holdings in a mansion that is being built for me right now for my retirement. This guy's now really troubled. He says, you know what bothers me? I've read the journals, and if your business is all you say it is, why haven't I heard about it before? Well, that's a good question, Jeff said. We have, after all, a 2,000-year-old tradition. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful way to put it? <laughs> this is the body in whom Christ dwells. Through his guidance and the triune God, we are penetrating every part of the world. Uh, we have a, you know, a, a manual, an employee training manual that's been translated into you know, tens and thousands of languages. We gather in cathedrals and modest buildings and houses and basements, and Jesus is present to all of them. But the big question in this text is, how does Jesus run his church? Do we just simply say, well, he's the head of the church? You know, that's a theological tenet. We salute running up the flagpole, but really ignore it? Or is there a reality to the way Jesus can run his church? And here's the key point. When each of us understands our value and place in the body of Christ and seeks to know from the head of the body the part we have been assigned to play, Jesus is given permission 
to run his church. Let me say that again. When each of us understands our value and place in the body of Christ and seeks to know from the head, who is Jesus, that what, this, what part that is that he assigned us to play, Jesus is given permission to run his church. So I think what Paul is speaking about here is value. Each one of us has a valuable part to play. But it's only as we do it together. <laughs> I'm incomplete without you. You're incomplete without me. And we share our own part. Then there's the completion that occurs. We don't have it all together. Together, we have it all. But then this begs the question, why don't we see more of this reality and actuality in the church? What gets in the way of the church truly being the body of Christ? And Paul, I think, identifies two attitudes here in this text that get in the way of it. The first one is an attitude of inferiority. We compare ourselves to other parts of the body and conclude that we don't have much to offer. The second one is superiority, and that is, I don't need the church to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus, yes, forget the church, no. So let's look at each one of those. Uh, first one is inferiority, or negative attitude of self, uh, lack of self-esteem. Paul has a little fun in this text. I think he's been a bit playful here. Uh, he has the body parts talking to each other. So if you turn to verses 15 and 16 of 1 Corinthians 12, we look at inferiority. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. Now, why would the foot and the ear feel like they are not much in comparison to the hand and the eye? What's going on here? It's comparison. Anytime you elevate parts of the body over others, people are going to compare and say, well, I can't be that. We have the same problem in the church that the Corinthians had back then. What gifts did they elevate? Healing, miracles, speaking in tongues, the showy gifts, the ones that we might categorize as the supernatural gifts. If you don't have those gifts, eh, you're not much. What do we do in the church today? We elevate a part of the body over the rest of the body. We call them pastors who preach. And no other gift can match that level of importance. As you know, Martin Luther was the leading figure behind the Reformation. And sometimes Martin Luther stepped on his own truths <laughs> with uh, contrary statements. One of the tenets of the Reformation is what we call the priesthood of all believers. What does that mean? Well, under the Old Covenant, there was a set-apart group of people called priests. Their role was to what? Be intermediaries between God and man, speak to man about God and speak to God about man, and bring the two together. Under the New Testament, there is no such priestly class. We are all priests. I represent God to you. You represent God to me. We minister to each other in that, that fashion. But like I said, Martin Luther could step on his own truth. And he said this about pastors. A Christian preacher is a minister of God who is set apart. Yea, he's an angel of God, a very bishop sent by God, a, a savior of many people, a king and a prince in the kingdom of Christ and among the people of God, a teacher, a light of the world. There is nothing more precious and nobler on earth and in this life than a true faithful parson or a preacher. 
Thank you very much. <laughs> on the one hand, we're all valued. On the other hand, oh, one's more valued than another. And we uphold that. So I want to do a little bit of a segue here at this point. As we anticipate our new pastor coming next Sunday, what is it that we should expect from our pastor? And equally, what should our pastor expect from us? So let me point to a passage of Scripture in the New Testament, which I think is the clearest passage in terms of the job description of a pastor and the role of the people uh, in the church. And this comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. You see it on the screen. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. If we take that same text and put it in picture form, you can see it on the screen. So apparently Paul is laying out here four leadership gifts within the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists. And I say the last one is one gift, shepherd, teacher, pastor, teacher, um, equivalent to what we would call pastors today. So according to this, what are these four gifted people to do? What's the one thing that they are to do? Equip the saints, right? So what's that word equip mean? Train, prepare, disciple, uh, the saints. And, and who are the saints? The special people, the Mother Teresas, those that have halos three inches above their head. Those are the saints? Come on, tell me. Who are the saints? Us? Did you, somebody say us? Yeah. You're saintly, right? No, we don't. We are saints only because of what Christ has done for us, right? And we have received a righteousness in our own. But Paul says here, it's the saints. And what are the saints to do? They're to do what? The work of ministry. The people of God are to do the work of ministry. The role of the pastor is to prepare the people of God to do the work of ministry. Now, what do we mean by ministry? Caring for the sick, encouraging one another, um, teaching one another, you know, taking the message of the gospel out into the world, uh, serving uh, in the world serving each other. A lot of the things that we s sort of expect pastors uh, to do in this day and age. And so I think what has happened is that we have become as priest-ridden in the church as Roman Catholics. We just changed the name and we call them pastors. And we put the focus of attention. So here's what I think has happened in the church. We've decided that we're going to block out, equip the saints, and we're going to just ask these people to do the work of ministry. Because that's what they get paid for. They went to seminary, of course. That's why we pay them. That's why we hire them uh, to do the work of ministry. But that's not the biblical definition of what the work of ministry uh, is all about. So what we have created, I think, in the church is what I call a dependency model ministry. We hire professionals to do ministry to us or for us. Even the way Sunday morning is set up, uh, we created kind of rows of people looking to a focal point. It's a spectator-performer relationship, uh, and the performer is up here, and we're spectators, and what are, what are spectators supposed to do? Evaluate how things have gone. 
And so we are writing up our review each Sunday morning, and we walk out and we shake the hands of the pastor, and the first thing we say is what? Good message, pastor. Sometimes, and I've even had this happen to me, somebody said, that's the best message I've ever heard on that topic. Wow, does that ever feed into my ego? Uh, but then I've heard the opposite. Um, I think I've told you this in a previous sermon. And my favorite comment, which was not my favorite at the moment, when the person walked by and shook my hands, I called it a drive-by shooting. <laughs> they said, uh, you know, you're getting better. <laughs> Had to be an evaluation there somewhere in that. Uh, so if, if I had a choir here, I probably could have turned to the choir this morning and they would have had numbers on their cards, you know, ice skating events, a gymnastic event, and, you know, give the evaluation. One very frustrated layperson uh, told me that his pastor said to him, my job is to preach the best sermon I can. Your job is to bring people to listen to me. Well, that's an extreme, I am sure. So when Pastor Tim arrives next week, what should we expect of him? To equip us to do the work of ministry. In other words, to create an environment where each of us can find our valued gifts and use them in ministry. Each of us feels significant, a part of the body of Christ. If that's occurring, then the pastor's doing his job. We're all employed. Sometimes within the church, sometimes the service is not in the church, but it's in other locations. I'm not saying all service has to be here. But on the other hand, what should Pastor Tim expect of us? Paul tells us that the body of Christ can be orchestrated only by Jesus if we are each seeking to answer the question for ourselves under God's guidance, what is my part in ministry according to our Lord that we're supposed to seek out, according to the head? Are we actively asking that question? What's my part? My wife is a volunteer at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Some of you might be as well. And Monterey Bay Aquarium is run by volunteers. They have some 1,500 volunteers that staff all the posts Monday through Sunday. And they have to turn people away. They have more people who want to be volunteers at the aquarium than they can, they can use or they will allow in the class. And even with that, you have to take a quarter course in marine biology to be a volunteer at the aquarium. So here's my dream. It would be more exciting to be a volunteer here at Carmel Presbyterian Church than at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Why? Because our mission is a lot better than their mission. It's an eternal mission to serve him. Why wouldn't we want to be engaged in that mission? To the extent that we elevate the role of pastor, we create passive pew sitters and take ourselves out of the game. The church has been compared to a football game. 50,000 people in the stands in desperate need of exercise, watching 22 people on the field in desperate need of rest. Yeah. <laughs> Inferiority. You know, I'm going to stop at this point and go straight to communion. You're not going to get my last point today. I think I've made a point already. And I think we have wrestled with that whole issue of inferiority. Paul talks about superiority, that's an issue as well. But as we gather around the communion table this morning, I want us to sense the value we have to our Lord, that he is the one who presides here today. He's the one who's given his life for us so that we can give our lives back to him and serve him 
and his way. Let's pray. Father God, we come before your table now this morning. We thank you for the sacrifice that you made to buy us back, to bring us into relationship with yourself, to reconcile us because of our, our sin, uh, to be one with you. Lord God, we ask that uh, you will just preside today. Make us aware of your presence. Make us aware of our connectedness one to another because of your presence with us. Unite this body, we pray, Lord, in that oneness of your spirit and mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.